0: are listening to Women Transcend. I'm Jennifer Todd, and this is a podcast that explores issues that affect women and girls worldwide. Each episode, we take a deep dive into a topic of national or international significance and discuss the particular impact on women and girls and how they're able to overcome or transcend. Whether you are a friend of the pod or a new listener, we're really glad you have found us. We bring Women Transcend to you each week. If you like the program, one thing you can do to support Women Transcend is to tell one other person about our show. We also encourage you to be sure to subscribe to our podcast so that new episodes will automatically show up in your podcast player each week. A quick programming note Women Transcend is currently running a Kickstarter campaign to raise money so we can launch Season 2. We ran 26 weekly episodes in Season 1. We hope you enjoyed our programs as much as we enjoyed bringing them to you. We'd appreciate if you'd consider helping us to deliver Season 2, which we hope will be even more provocative and impactful with your help. If you're interested in helping us out, go to our webpage which is www.womentranscend.com, and you can find a link directly to our Kickstarter campaign under the About Us tab. Our campaign runs through September 9th. Listeners, please note this trigger warning. This episode does include discussion of rape and sexual violence. Hi friends, this is Jennifer Todd and I am joined by...
1: John Philbeck.
0: Thank you, John, for joining me. How are you today?
1: I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing, Jennifer?
0: Good. We are tackling a really big topic today. Yes, we are. We are going to be talking about women and children living in a conflict zone. So my interview coming up next is with Annie Eggle, who is an amazing woman who has done a lot of work in development and international relief. Um, just phenomenal. Definitely stay tuned. But I think this is an issue that falls square within what we try to do with Women Transcend, which is bring up the important issues that nobody's talking about, but really we should be. Yes, and women living in conflict zone or war living in turmoil yeah and how they're able to hold families together and you know feed kids yeah. and care for um, their families but even more than that just survive
1: yeah it really it's one of those things where you consciously you know it happens but you don't really think about what the reality is like for those for those people in that situation and and how they're able to to cope and just and go on living into those situations
0: yeah i i think it's kind of honestly hard to be empathetic when it's so vastly different from our day-to-day experience yeah you know i want to learn about this and and be empathetic, but it's such a struggle. So I want to talk about how women and children are used, how there's a strategy around the use of women and children during conflict or during war. Yes. And this is something that, again, I just don't think that people know
1: about. This was the the mind-blowing part of this interview for me. I just, I really had no idea, um, not not just that women and girls are, are being, you know, subjected to all the, the upheaval, but they're actually being used for these sort of nefarious purposes. Yeah. It's and just it's, horrifying.
0: Yeah. It's become a strategy of this warfare, and it's not new. You know, it's not a 21st century thing.
1: Probably goes back thousands of years. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But in modern conflict, we're talking about the systematic use of sexual violence against women and girls.
1: Yeah. As a tool to demoralize and control the population.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's one way to terrorize a population is to sort of pick off its most vulnerable and sort of spit in the eye of a population by yeah. saying you can't even take care of your women and children. Yeah.
1: The thing that this makes me think of is my very naive thought before hearing this interview, and it wasn't even something that I thought about at all, really, but I think in the back of my mind, I was thinking, well, if there was rape that goes on in a, a war situation, you know, sexualized violence, it was really, you know... a a few bad actors, sort of um, not under orders, in other words. Yeah. But, but what we're talking about is under orders they're doing. It must be under orders, right? Because it's a, it's a a systematic strategy.
0: Uh-huh. And then also the the use of kidnapping of children and taking children to become child soldiers is a reality. And, you know, you may never see that child again, and if you do they may, be, may at that time be sort of on the other side. Yeah. If they know you, they may not yeah. see you as an ally.
1: Yeah, w- with a, a completely different personality. Yeah, uh-huh. Which is, again, just terrifying to think of as a parent.
0: Yeah. And then the other thing she talks about is how being exposed to the these warlike situations or war or conflict or however you want to call it normalizes it mm-hmm. and you know that's obviously i can see how that can happen you have to you have to reach a normative state to survive yeah but it normalizes that level of violence and you know for men it can make it easier to engage in violent activity if it's normalized yes yeah
1: yeah Even outside of that context.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I don't really have much more to add to this because her...
1: Annie is so eloquent in this. Yeah, and, and... and
0: it's such a powerful interview. It's definitely worth a listen. So let's just jump right to the interview with the amazing Annie Eggle. My guest today is Annie Eggle. Annie is the Managing Director of Development 3. Welcome to Women Transcend, Annie.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Jennifer. I'm honored to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited to talk with you about issues that are so very important and yet tend to receive relatively little coverage. They seem to be the things that get bumped off of the, the mainstream media the first, um, when there's breaking news. Um, and that's women and children in conflict zones, or, you know, in the middle of any kind of conflict. And I know that you have done some research and have some experience in this area. So I'm really anxious to talk with you and get your thoughts on this. So Women are generally the the keeper of the family and the keeper of the household. And when there's a conflict, whatever kind it is, internal, external, war, civil war, whatever, that household is disrupted, and they may be physically disrupted and internally displaced, or they are in place. but it, it's my impression it's the woman that the mother, the, the grandmother that holds the family together and cares for the kids and makes sure that people in the family get fed during a conflict.
2: Is that fair to say? Yes, I think that um, mothers are tasked with the impossible duty of trying to normalize life in very abnormal situations of upheaval. And this creates incredible strains that are specific to women and children in the sense that it's not a really achievable undertaking in the first place to create normalcy when there's really no architecture around you to do that. At the same time, women are also being targeted by specific gender-based violence crimes and are particularly vulnerable. So not only do They have the expectation on their shoulders of continuing in their role as mother, but they also are particularly vulnerable to the conflict and crimes around them. And it creates a very taxing situation that results in a lot of sexualized violence, and in the Western side, a lot of sensationalism, And kind of fetishization of the women and children experience, which we use to sort of tag at heartstrings without telling the more complete story there. That is an excellent
0: point that cannot be highlighted more, for example, that extraordinarily disturbing picture of the Syrian children on the beach.
2: Yes, correct. Correct. And I do think that there are many journalists who can use these stories and use photojournalism in ways that really humanize uh, the story and convey a sense of urgency around what's occurring. At the same time, we do an incredible disservice to children and women when we sort of use them for our own marketing schemes to kind of counteract apathy in our own domestic situation at the expense of of their well-being Uh Um, and dignity. And that becomes very traumatizing. And it's also very re-traumatizing for any refugees who are trying to rebuild their lives, who have gone through things like this and see it plastered all over our media. That is a really important point. Yeah.
0: And even if they haven't been through that specific event or, you know, necessarily from that specific area of the country, you can be triggered by something very upsetting, you know, the loss of a child and seeing something like that can trigger deep
2: feelings. Sure. Yeah. I mean, one of my uh, clients who I worked with, uh, he had this really poignant comment when I asked him what, what had been the hardest aspect of coming to the EU and restarting his life. And he said that it wasn't until reading European newspapers that he realized how awful his life had been and that he felt both ashamed and for the first time really angry about what had happened to him. And he felt like in Europe he thought he was going to be able to escape this past That for him wasn't just a story of victimization, it was a story of victory, of of getting himself and his family into a safer area, of surviving what they had gone through, of doing it with their family intact, miracle by miracle, and that arriving here sort of trivialized it. And people's reactions to him and his family were so uh, sentimental in some ways that it made him feel very bad about what had occurred for him. In a way that he hadn't felt before, which I thought I thought was an interesting comment for someone to make, and an interesting comment on our society.
0: Yeah, absolutely. yeah. I did an episode um, a couple of months ago on refugees, and I spoke with a gentleman who was an aid worker, and he said it wasn't until he started working in refugee camps that he realized that he himself was a refugee his parents having fled Pakistan when he was young. So that just triggered that memory for me. Not that that was a traumatic memory, but you mentioned ways that women and children can be victims or victimized during conflict. And, you know, one can easily see how that can happen because systems have broken down. By definition, there's chaos and and a lack of protection. What kind of Of ways are are women and children victimized?
2: Um, I think, generally speaking, control of women is one of the first tenets of any kind of antagonizing entity, and so the issue of really looking at violence against women in times and areas of conflicts really started with a, a kind of seminal book called "Sexual Violence Against Jewish Women." during the Holocaust by Sonia Hedgepeth and uh, Rochelle Seidel. And that was kind of the first book that really opened the can of worms into really having aid sector workers and researchers look at how control of women and children through either sexualized assault or deliberate targeted crimes or through um, kidnap or through removal really played a hand in war. And why was that? And I think the critical things that we want to look at is that, you know, according to the UN, rape, especially in areas of conflict, is typically used to decimate and psychologically ruin the other side. That if you can't protect your women, if you can't protect your children, it really sends you kind of into a societal spiral, that you can't provide basic protections for the most vulnerable in your society and so that if if you are an antagonizer and want to disrupt or decimate or get rid of an ethnic group or another political entity one of the most effective ways of diminishing morale and really contributing to that effort is to attack women and children and obviously, sexualized violence is one tool that is very frequently used. Uh-huh. And uh, in terms of children, you know, rape against children, that's that's one aspect. But also just starvation, also just uh, deliberate um, incorporation of children as child soldiers into conflict. Yep. It neutralizes the threat posed by future generations. Mm-hmm. And it also breeds them into a new culture of soldiering and conflict that becomes their religion. It becomes their childhood. Uh Um, And so uh, these are the kind of tools that are frequently used against women and children.
0: Wow. That's so strikingly powerful. Um, And then what about the role of trafficking and who is vulnerable to be a victim of trafficking during conflict?
2: I mean, again, I think women and children are always going to be more vulnerable. Uh Um, You know, they're not given tools for protection. They're frequently in a kind of limbo area where there really is no political governance structure. So there are no services, there are no protections. In many cases where conflict occurs, also are areas where there is a cultural context of more traditional societal structure that's underpinned by widespread acceptance of patriarchal norms and perceptions that can normalize rape and trafficking and subordination of women and children. And that's taken from a lot of UN research. Uh, the, The links between where rape and trafficking occur in conflict zones, it's not enough that there just be a conflict. Although, obviously, rape always goes up where there's a conflict, but you see it in very extreme numbers like we see in the Democratic Republic of Congo, yeah. like we saw during Rwanda, like we mm-hmm. are seeing in Syria. It also is worse when there's already an existent culture that is not thrown into upheaval the same way a political structure is, that culture is still there. Mm -hmm. And so you have a backdrop of no protections for women and children. Those are removed. And you have a culture that says women are owned, women are controlled, children are products of women until they reach maturity, they are to be controlled, and they are to be treated as Uh chattel. And so you have this kind of situation where protections are removed, upheaval's in place, there's a desperation for money, and this leads to trafficking and gender violence. Yeah.
0: In areas where there are conflicts or conflict zones, Mm -hmm. uh, one other thing that comes out of these areas are extremists or radical extremists or I'm trying not to use the word terrorist. And you had some thoughts on that.
2: Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, one of the more interesting psychological studies that I believe was carried out by the World Bank interviewed men before and after engaging in soldier actions in uh, conflict upheaval. And before they fought and were kind of indoctrinated into war, in the project of war, only 2% of them said that they enjoyed hurting people for the sake of hurting people. After two years of war, 44% of them said that they enjoyed hurting people for the sake of hurting people. After four years of war, 65% of them said that they enjoyed hurting people. Wow. And so I think it's important to understand how traumatizing conflict is and how normalizing violence becomes Uh and uh, how seductive it can be. And uh, deteriorating to humanity. And so I think conflict produces conflict. Yep. Uh, trauma produces trauma. Uh-huh. And I think it also produces human migration. Yes. And so you have, you have a whole demographic of people, whether they're internally displaced, whether we're talking about Syrians, which are, you know, that's kind of the one that's on our consciousness, right, in our consciousness right now. It delivers a population who has known trauma. And these communities are more likely and more susceptible to radicalization because of the conflict they have experienced. And that's really important to understand. It's really important to understand that as a precursor to not radicalize, that therapy is really important. And Uh that was the other thing. Some of these boys who were done for the same study once they found that they got therapy and some of them did yoga, they, they went through a whole like shedding your conflict, the stats went back. The same individuals who had said that they enjoyed hurting people very much by the end of this uh, this therapy treatment and integration program said that they, were, they felt no pleasure in hurting people, that they understood conflict better than their therapist did, and that Now they were in a position to say no for this, and then they became actually very well-placed and very emotionally stable in their ability to be uh, peacekeepers. Wow. And so it's not to say you can't reverse that. And in many cases, people who have experienced conflict, if they're given the access to the kind of support they need, are actually the best-positioned people to go back and advocate for peace in their community. And so it's not to say you can't reverse it. Uh-huh. But what happens on the ground happens in the mind, right? And I think that's really important. So it's such a huge aspect of talking about these issues has to be talked about with a sense of any solution involving mental wellness programs.
0: Uh-huh. So we're specifically talking about males who were involved in violence and combatants. Do you have any thoughts on the therapy or recovery of women who have been traumatized?
2: Absolutely. And there are many important things. The first of all is you need to address cultural stigma. So a huge problem with addressing rape is that, first of all, many, many women believe that rape is normalized they don't really see rape as rape until you have this conversation. So it's really important that when journalists and when aid sector workers have these conversations that they do so with incredible sensitivity and only after having received very specific training in how to have these kind of conversations because many women aren't aware of how traumatized they are until you have these conversations Uh with them. And that's the moment when you also need to come in with mental support. Obviously, first is the medical support, any kind of examinations that need to occur, any kind of evidentiary support that might help for fact-finding and, and help for justice, and then obviously just physical treatment. And after that, mental counsel really happens next, and that takes a long time, and it's really best if you incorporate and train women who have suffered from these crimes about how to talk to other women who have suffered from these crimes. Because, you know, rape in America is a very different phenomenon than rape in Africa. The scars are different. The process of healing is a little Uh bit different, even if the physical experience is is the same. So just any of these programs I was just going to wrap up need to be culturally sensitive, and the best way for them to be culturally sensitive is to primarily be run and organized and directed by women who have themselves gone through the healing process and are now in a position to help other women in their community go through that same process. Uh-huh. And I would think that it would
0: be really important to engage women from similar or the same culture who would understand the cultural underpinnings and ramifications Correct. of being a victim.
2: Correct, correct. And each society, I mean, some societies have more stigmas than others. For example, you know, in many Syrian communities, there's just such a stigma against you as a woman once you've been raped, because so much of the burden for maintaining the morality and the fiber of a family's reputation lies with a woman. And so once a woman has been raped, that family has also been raped. That's Uh kind of the way it's been viewed. And so to come forward about that isn't just to jeopardize your own position in that society where your family may turn you out, might treat you as a pariah, might try to make a very big deal of creating a boundary between you and your family um, because you are kind of tarnished now. And so it prevents a lot of women from coming forward. But when they do, they need to completely recreate their entire community And so having, working with other women who have already made that transition, who have gone through this process, who are also doing cultural and community engagement and education on why it's really important to support your women, that it's not their fault that this happened, that this is not a blemish on your reputation, that how you care for your women, that is the true mark of your reputation. And so these programs, again, it's like, Someone like me, I can go in and I can try to help set them up. I can try to provide them with the resources they need to do these things. But at the end of the day, it's really important that these programs be localist.
0: Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Can you talk to me a little bit about the link between gender violence in conflict
2: zones and radicalization? You know, when I started off looking at things like honor violence and rape and conflict zones and these things, truthfully, no one was talking about these issues. And now they're very much hot button topics, uh-huh. which is also always kind of a strange thing in the sector when you happen to be trendy all of a second. Why um, do you think that is? You know, I think for a variety of reasons. I think the whole issue of Muslim women and how they're treated and what their position is and what their role is has been commandeered by our political situation right now. And so you have the far right using this narrative to obviously justify extremely xenophobic tendencies without really caring what happens to these women Uh on the left side, there seems to be a sort of trivialization of things like honor violence, especially that these things are still occurring in the West. They don't really want to deal with that reality because it's challenging to their kind of belief that we sh- um, should be open societies uh-huh. and neither party is really s- suggesting that actually uh, counterterrorism if you do it correctly is not that difficult. This is one of the great myths out there but um, you know as we've been seeing with these London bombers there were already three reports from the community saying you really needed to look at these Yeah, and as in many of the cases I mean one of the research items I've looked at is that all but three of the last 30 attackers in western countries of muslim justified terrorism have had existing charges of sexual violence uh, leveraged against them by women in their communities and that because there's no reporting on these issues and because there's no repercussions and because some politicians don't want to touch these because it's too culturally sensitive and then on the other side you know, the right yeah. makes a big hubaloo about these cases that doesn't really do anything about them. But where we address these cases and where we actually uh-huh. give credibility to the women who are coming forward, it's very apparent that there's an, an extremely obvious link between gender violence and radicalization, that really how individuals in these communities are treating their women is probably the surest indication that some radicalization has occurred. And so we found in some of the pilot programs we've worked on that in in community cases where you do accept the validity of these confessions when these women come forward and act on them and protect their interests and um, either remove these individuals or prosecute them, you end up really eliminating not just this threat to women, but also threat to the state and to civilians. And so that's kind of... I think one of the reasons that this issue has become trendy. And the other thing is, you know, I don't really know. (laughs) the other. It's just, there's no rhyme or reason. And it's a very frustrating aspect of the sector. And it's especially, it's both gratifying and frustrating when it happens to be your issue. Yeah. You know, you feel like, oh, suddenly I'm being invited to conferences. A lot of people want to talk to me. My organization has good, interesting clients right now. At the same time, it feels really crummy in the sense of, like, well, why didn't you care yeah. five years ago, yeah. and what are your real motives around this? Is it really that you want to help advance women's rights on a universal level, or is it more that you want to justify your party politics? You know, and that's that gets very frustrating, especially when you are, more than anything else, trying to protect the interests of the community you're trying to advocate for. Wow. Um,
0: That is so much for me to take in. I have had OMG moments throughout our discussion. (laughs) So I thank you so much for lending your expertise and this really important discussion. And I really hope that people think about this. And when you see news coverage of conflict, just understand that there are lives behind those disturbing pictures. You know, there are women and children trying to hold families together. Um, So I thank you for having this important discussion and also for your really important work. And I appreciate that so much just as a fellow human on walking this earth as softly as I can.
2: Thank you so much. What a nice closing statement.
0: episode's Woman in the Spotlight is Victoire Mukambanda. Victoire was the victim of repeated rape by government-backed combatants during the Rwandan genocide. Victoire gave testimony about her experience before an international tribunal on the Rwandan genocide. This tribunal was a part of the first trial that successfully prosecuted rape as a war crime and an act of genocide. This tribunal laid the foundation for more women to come forward sharing their stories of rape as a war crime. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Women Transcend. You can do us a big favor and tell at least one other person about our podcast and how to find us. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you can be sure you won't miss an episode. It will automatically show up in your podcast player. A big thanks to Annie Eggle for speaking with me for today's powerful episode and to John Philbeck for doing all of the fabulous sound artistry so that we sound so good tweet us at Women Transcend or follow us on Facebook. We always enjoy hearing from you. That's all for this episode.